1: Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. It's a special edition today. I'm visiting the Kubrick exhibition, the Stanley Kubrick exhibition, at the Design Museum in London, uh, Kensington High Street. And uh, the exhibition has been touring around the world, and but it's now arrived here in London, and it's been tailored specifically to the sort of interests of a London audience. There's a lot of stuff reflecting Stanley Kubrick's relationship with London, and of course, with the fact that he lived uh, in the environs of London. So we're gonna walk through uh, the, uh, the exhibition here at the Design Museum, and I'll talk through some of the things that catch my eye. I'm really looking forward to it, because I've heard very good things about this On its world tour before when I was in the Isle of Man last year with the Isle of Man Film Festival I was there with uh, Katrina Kubrick and she was talking about the exhibition, how excited she was about it. That was when we showed, I think we showed a 4K of 2001 then. So I've been looking forward to this for a while, so here we go. The Design Museum in London, the Stanley Kubrick Exhibition. Tony, why
0: don't you want to go to the hotel? I don't
1: know. You do too, no. No,
0: come on, tell me. Don't want to. Please? No. Don't
1: tell me, tell me. So the first thing you notice is that in order to get into the exhibition, you have to walk over uh, the shining carpet. Um, The shining carpet, which was famously chosen because it was so infuriating to look at it was meant to be one of those things on the one hand it, it implied a maze and it implied getting lost in something but also the the weird color scheme the orange the dark orange the brown there was something about it that was supposed to be fantastically off-putting of course it's subsequently become something of an icon nowadays people actually want to have their houses carpeted in this really weird design you can buy ties and you know shirts and things with this really strange design on it. So we're walking through that and the first thing that happens is you come into it's a sort of clips reel of Kubrick but it's designed to emphasize the kind of the architectural point of view of Kubrick. So what you have is a screen straight in front of you with two screens to either side which expand the image out almost like Cinerama of course in which Kubrick was famously interested. There's clips from 2001, clips from Barry Lyndon, clips from The Shining. Now we're just looking at the Stargate sequence. And a couple of clips from 2001, Full Metal Jacket, the swabbing down the floors, Eyes Wide Shut, still my least favourite Kubrick film, uh, Doctor Strange Love, and of course The Shining. So it's, it's introducing you with moving images which are kind of split up in a way that kind of show you how the immersive quality of Kubrick's films work. And then the first room we get into, which is described as being like a kind of backstage area. So what we see here is loads of artefacts from pre-production. So in this room, which is kind of like a backstage area, the thing that you notice almost immediately is that they have Stanley's editing console. Um, It's sitting there proudly. That's the uh, editing console that he edited on. Apparently they tried to fire it up but every time they did it blew the fuses uh, in the museum. But it's great to see it there because it's an old Steinbeck and it looks you know you can imagine Kubrick sitting at it editing his films. We have a model of the centrifuge from 2001. Almost everything that Kubrick did was designed on paper and then model form first. particularly Particularly in terms of 2001. So that's there's a sort of central centrifuge there. We also have certain cameras and lenses. There's there's the spider cam that he used over here, which was you know, a moving camera. We'll, later on, we'll see some stuff about Steadicam. And lots of pre-production stills of him shooting Spartacus. So this first, this first room is basically showing you the behind-the-scenes stuff. We have some posters, we have some letters. Throughout the exhibition, there are letters. And we should say as well that they haven't organised the exhibition chronologically. They've done it kind of thematically. So war and conflict is one theme, censorship is another theme. And on the, poster, on the walls here we have posters for Shining, Barry Lyndon, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, 2001. As you'll probably know, Kubrick was in control of everything. So he took great care to make sure that every single image that you saw relating to one of his films was signed off by him. Now as we move on, we come into an area which sort of depicts war and conflict so immediately in front of us is a huge picture from Spartacus of the aftermath of battle with a huge number of extras as corpses each one of them holding holding up a number 275 19 10 163 so that Kubrick could basically direct and choreograph the carnage by number and this is a kind of it's a sort of lovely example of the way in which Kubrick thought things through strategically. I mean, one of the astonishing things about his films is it's just the sheer organisational level of what goes into constructing the image. And this is a great picture. because On the one hand, it's quite funny. I mean, it's tragic and it's a, you know, it's a blood-strewn scene, but it's also quite funny because they're holding these weird numbers. We have costumes here from Spartacus famous quote, it was the only one of my films over which I did not have complete control. Significant not because he didn't have complete control over it, but for the fact that from then on, he never made another movie over which he didn't have complete control. And again, one of the things you do get from the exhibition is that sense of complete control. Now in each one of the rooms, there are some moving images. There are scenes from the film. So here, for example, there's a scene from Spartacus, which is playing out. There's a fantastic picture of Stanley Kubrick on a, on a crane whilst filming Spartacus in Spain. It's this huge, great big tower-like crane with him sitting at the top of it, looking like a kind of mad professor with his, uh, his trademark you know, jacket and shirt, holding, a, holding up a lens to look through. That's a great picture.
0: Good muscle tone. Can I see his teeth? Open your mouth, Spartacus.
1: You smell like a rhinoceros. Captain, the teeth, you asked him to open his mouth. He doesn't
0: obey you? His teeth are the best thing about him. He hamstrung a guard with him not more than an
1: hour ago. Hamstrung? How marvelous. I wish I'd been here. I'll take him. Let's look at some of the others. So now we're in the section that's dealing with Full Metal Jacket. So these are pictures of the gas works that were transformed into the landscape of Vietnam for Full Metal Jacket. Famously, when Kubrick made Full Metal Jacket, which is set in Vietnam, he decided to do it at the Becton Gas Works. So what we have is photographs, firstly aerial photographs showing the works themselves, and then photographs of them in various states of destruction including this letter, which is great, which is from Stanley says, Dear Derek, I understand the large smokestacks are going to come down this Sunday. If it's possible, I'd like to leave the rubble there at least until we've finished filming. The place has been cleaned up a bit too much and the extra debris would be helpful. Is that possible? That's from July 11th, 1984. And again, these are kind of behind-the-scenes photographs that show you what the area looked like and how it was transformed effectively into being (coughs) the area that we know from the film. Then as we move into the next room, I've just noticed there's a model helicopter up in the air, which I haven't noticed before. There's the famous Don McCollin photograph of the uh, shell-shocked soldier from Vietnam. And playing along next to that is a scene from Full Metal Jacket that's filmed in amidst the area that we've just seen in those photographs of the gas works. You can see how... Oh, this is the surfing bird sequence. It's one of the best uses of pop music in a movie ever. This is such a fantastic use of surfing bird. <laughs> The weird thing with that Don McCullen photograph, which I know this is just a personal note, when I was a kid, Don McCullen was, was our next-door neighbour, and I was very good friends with, uh, with Don's son, Paul. And uh, so, weirdly enough, whenever I see Don McCullen's photographs, I, always, I just remember growing up next door to him and uh, the fact that he was gone for long periods of time because he was out you know, making these extraordinary images.
0: I've taught you much, my little droogies. Now tell me what you had in mind, Georgie boy.
1: So the Clockwork Orange section has a screening room in which at the moment they're playing the scene of Alex in the hospital, the thumbs up scene uh, towards the end of the f- end of the film. If you're a regular here at the podcast, you'll know that we interviewed uh, Malcolm McDowell a couple of weeks ago, and McDowell had come to the exhibition and talked about how much he was looking forward to seeing it here. So there he is in all his glory as Alex Large, of course, Alexander the Great. Uh, there's a brilliant um, collection of photographs here. There's four photographs together of tests for the hats that Alex might have worn. When Malcolm McDowell was talking on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about the fact that the costume was born out of the fact that he turned up at... Kubrick's house and he said well what am I going to wear and Kubrick said what have you got and he said well I've got my cricket whites in the car and Kubrick said well go and put them on and actually when you look I'm sure that actually the story was more complicated than that but when you look at these pictures you can see him wearing a version of those cricket whites and then a selection of hats a top hat a tall top hat a less tall top hat and then two hats one of which literally makes him look like a member of the Wurzels and because we know how brilliantly the, the bowler hats and everything work in Clockwork Orange. It's, it's terrific to see the sort of the things that they'd looked at before getting the bowler hat right. Malcolm McDowell was also pointing out that when they did the poster for Clockwork Orange, Kubrick was very specific about the arc of the bowler hat being right. He said originally the arc of the bowler hat was wrong. Now there are a series of um, uh, press cuttings and letters about the responses to Lolita and to Clockwork Orange. This is lovely. This is, um, this is a letter to Stanley Kubrick dated 15th of January 1972. It's a handwritten letter because famously Kubrick kept everything. It says this. It's from Gerald Weber. Dear Stanley Kubrick, I saw your film The Clockwork Orange. So elementary mistake in the beginning, not The Clockwork Orange. And I feel I must write to you and criticise it for what it was. There was too much violence in it and not enough sex. I hated the violence, and I loved all the sex, a nightmare, which is a really peculiarly twisted response to uh, Clockwork Orange. Um, there is uh, some news articles here about Lolita and about there Here is a letter from Christian Action. This is dated the 15th of March, 1961. Dear sir, further to my letter of the first of March, I have read a report in the Sunday Pictorial this week which suggests that the filming of the Lolita is already in hand. I think the pictorials, pictures and comments are such as to arouse considerable misgivings throughout the country. I'd be glad to reply to my letter. We would not wish to launch upon my, any protest without first trying to discover what are the reasons which you seem to think justify the making of this film. That is from Canon L. John Collins, Chairman, to Stanley Kubrick, Esquire. There's also some other notices from the Bible Presbyterian Church. So these are all sort of framed within the context of the controversy that uh, those films generated. And then this is a little section which is like being in the milk bar. We have the famous uh, sculptures of the sort of spider walking naked women. We have um, uh, someone wearing a Droogs costume with, famously with the cricket protector on the outside. Um, that's a, a, I say someone, it's a mannequin obviously. And then items that you'll recognise from the film, some original, some reproductions. We have the typewriter that's famously used um, in the writer's scene, the record player. Oh, the record player, wow. Which does still look extraordinary. And the huge uh, rocking phallic sculpture. That's obviously, that's not the original of that, but it's a reproduction. I remember we once, we made a documentary about Clockwork Orange 4 Channel 4 some years ago and the film was directed by Paul Joyce and Paul had a replica of that sculpture built and we went to the Thamesmead Estate and he decided it would be a very good idea for the end of the film to have a shot of it floating out on the water on the Thamesmead Estate and he put it on the water and it floated away and we couldn't get it back and it was out there for hours, the source of many complaints that there was a large phallic sculpture floating merrily around the Thamesmead Estate
0: One thing I could never stand was to see a filthy, dirty old drunkie howling away at the filthy songs of his fathers and going blurp blurp in between as it might be a filthy old orchestra in his stinking rotten guts. I could never stand to see anyone like that, whatever his age might be, but more especially when he was real old like this one was.
1: So there are again drawing designs. I mean, this does really feel like walking through the the process of creation. On the wall here, Here are some letterings for original poster designs. One there for Orange Mechanique. This is particularly important to anyone who, like me, when they were younger, went to see Clockwork Orange in France because you couldn't see it in the UK because it was withdrawn from circulation by Kubrick after its initial first run. It played for a couple of years, and then he got Warner Brothers to take it out of circulation from the UK. Again, we talked to Malcolm McDowell about that um, in that podcast, and he said he understood why because Kubrick had become worried about the response to the film. Also on the wall, there is an image from the scene that I was talking to McDowell about in which we see the druids walking in slow motion along the Thames Meter state next to that piece of water that, that Paul Joyce lost the huge phallic sculpture on. And I'm just remembering looking at that, even in a still image, it looks brilliant. But McDowell saying that he, when, when it was being shot, he said, Stanley, this is the most boring shot I've ever seen. And Stanley said, it's all in the camera. It's all in the camera. And when you see it, in the film, it's one of the most iconic moments. Also, there's a shot here of McDowell in the record store. I know everybody knows this, but front and centre in the records that he's flicking through is the soundtrack album to 2001. Also, you'll see elsewhere in that, uh, I think on the charts, there's, um, or is it in the line of dialogue? I think it's a line of dialogue, is the reference to Heaven 17, which is where they got their name from as well. But that's very cheeky of Kubrick to put such an obvious... 2001 <laughs> sleeve right there at the front of your screen then here are a number of, of designs that have, were variously used in, um, in publicity for Clockwork Orange I've got one of the original Clockwork Orange um, brochures that came out with the film and some of these images are in it the image of Alex holding up the, the glass with the teeth the image of the grinning droogs with the face masks on from here we move into the section about Eyes Wide Shut, famously Kubrick's last film. As I said, from my point of view, I still think his, his least successful work, but the work on which he devoted so much time was given complete control over it. So here are a series of photographs of Commercial Road. And apparently to take these photographs, because what Kubrick was trying to do is to find locations, but also to get... Inspiration stuff, because an awful lot of, um, of Eyes Wide Shut, it's all set in New York, but of course it's all filmed around here. And uh, Manuel Harland took these photographs of Commercial Road, and in order to make the photographs match up together, so you get the whole long strip of Commercial Road, he had to go all the way down the road on a, on a stepladder taking these photographs. Again, another personal note, this is strange for me, because years and years ago I was in Manchester, and I was the musical director on a play called The Death of Joe Hill, and um, the lead actor in the play was Manuel Harlan, and I was in this play with him for ages. And then I remember at some point having a conversation with him in which he revealed that he w- he was related to Stanley Kubrick, and of course he ended up you know doing the photographs for this. I think he also worked on Full Metal Jacket. I just remember saying, w- you're- "Stanley Kubrick's your uncle," and Manuel saying, "Yeah." And I said, "Well." Why, why did you never tell me this? He said, well, you never asked. I said, yeah, it's like, it's not the kind of thing you would ask somebody. Hello, is Stanley Kubrick your uncle? Ternay he was. Here we go. I mean, I suppose if I if had any, my wits about me, I would have noticed the name Harlan because of course Jan Harlan was so much a kind of, you know, a key part of Kubrick's process. On the wall here, we have a series of photographs, of eyes wide shut. Here are some photographs of Stanley Kubrick with Sidney Pollack. Sidney Pollack, who took a role famously replacing Harvey Keitel. Incidentally, as you all know, the Harvey Keitel story is not true. Harvey Keitel himself has actually been told that that story exists, and he said, yeah, it's a load of rubbish, um, which of course it is. He did say, however, that he, he was particularly bothered that Kubrick had had him on set for ages, hadn't used him, and then had replaced him, not with another actor, but with a director, which he thought was the ultimate insult. So as we walk through this, here are some original poster ideas for eyes wide shut i have to say i think these posters are really great they're like um, death masks face masks of um cruz and kidman one problem i always had with the eyes wide shut posters and the eyes wide shut credits is even from the trailers it said cruz kidman kubrick cruz kidman kubrick and i remember seeing the trailer for eyes wide shut with nigel floyd and going no surely kubrick cruz kidman how, why does Stanley Kubrick get third billing to Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman? When did that happen? So now as we walk in, we can hear that the, the infamously grating piano uh, sounds from um, Eyes Wide Shut. And ahead of us are a series of the masks from the famous, well, the famous non, non-orgy orgy scene. Um, there are stories that when Kubrick was researching Eyes Wide Shut, he pulled in as many sort of edgy movies, kind of erotic thrillers as he could to see what it was possible to get away with in a movie nowadays. And I've always felt that he must have just pulled in a bunch of Greg Dart movies and gone, yeah, let's do that, but with a nice camera. Um, On the wall is, we see a a moving sequence. This is uh, the sequence from uh, from the famous orgy in which Tom Cruise turns up and Fails to get satisfied despite saying the magic word Fidelia to a man dressed as a chicken, which I never really understood. So let's move away from Eyes Wide Shut and into The Shining. Well,
0: just have to tell them that we're going by ourselves. That's all there is to it. Red rock. Red
1: rock. Red rock. This room Red, is coloured orange, it kind of reflects the color of the carpet that we first walked over, that famously annoying carpet. And I think for many people this is going to be one of the most interesting areas. So we have various versions of the script, various sort of annotated versions of the shooting. Here is a copy of the novel with annotations for... I mean, this is really interesting, seeing the novel of The Shining done like this because I've I've seen a copy of um, the Exorcist novel which Friedkin went through with a highlighter pen to, after Blatty had turned in his first version of the script, Friedkin complained that the script wasn't enough like the novel and so he just went through the novel and highlighted sections of it. It's interesting to see this here because, of course, famously, the film of The Shining is very, very different to the novel, so much so that Stephen King didn't like The Shining at all. He thought it... It kind of undid his story. And at the centre of this, we have the maze. And this is a reproduction of the maze in the film, the sequence famously in which Jack Nicholson looks into the maze and sees the characters moving through it. So this is a reproduction of it, but it's a really eerie reproduction. It's very well done. It's the overlooked maze, which kind of represents the central theme of the film itself, which is that you get lost in the architecture of the film. And then this is, this is lovely. There's some stuff on the wall about the invention of the Steadicam. So here is a letter. This is dated the 10th of February, 1976. If you're a horror that you know, you'll know that the early sequences in Halloween use what people think of as a Steadicam. It's, a, it's actually a Lumacam. It's, a, it's, a, it's something which preceded the Steadicam. So there's always this kind of big debate about whether Steadicam was used first in Halloween or in The Shining. But this is a letter of February 1976, the Ed DiGiulio camera bracket, Dear Stanley, I saw this new contraption for handheld shots in action. It's just terrific. Um, this is from uh, Jan Holland. Um, enclosed a photograph of one of the prototypes. The whole secret is a perfect balance of the camera and the arm and a spring-loaded tension arm, which separates the body movement from the camera to an astonishing degree. So this is kind of the beginning of how they managed to figure out how to get all those tracking shots in The Shining, which becomes so much a kind of centre of the film. And then we have around some photographs of it being used and it being in action on the film through that maze with the the spring-loaded arm. that, of course, we're now all completely used to. And then over here, this is great. This is a a series of boxes. I didn't know this had happened when um, it turns out that Wendy finds out what it is that Jack's been writing, which is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Here are a series of different versions of the paper in different languages for the alternate international versions of the film. Was du hört kannst besorgen, dass wir sich nicht auf morgen. Und jens, wat mi... This is my terrible pronunciation. Ke der, some different versions of all work in that. Na- no por mucho madruga, amanece más temprano. So these would have been then inserted into at the, the moment at which Wendy discovers what it is that her husband has been writing all this time. German, French, Spanish, and Italian versions of the film. Kubrick had this line translated into the equivalent proverb for each language and placed in the typewriter for Wendy, played by Shelley Duval, and who suffered enormously during the making of that film, as we see from the behind-the-scenes footage. That's great. And then over here, there is an image of the twins, and then the twins' dresses. Now, of course, famously, the twins in the... I mean, although the, the actors who played the twins were twins, they're not twins. In the story, it's, it's made explicit that there's a couple of years' difference in their ages, but they are, they are always known as the twins. And apparently, the twins did come here yesterday and were a real... Um, a real uh, attraction. So it says here, dress and shoes worn by Lisa and Louise Burns as Grady's daughters, the Grady twins, who aren't twins. 1972 Kubrick saw the Museum of Modern Art's Diane Arbus retrospective that included her famous photograph, Identical Twins. 1967 some have speculated that this influenced kubrick's portrayal of grady's daughters in the shining his assistant leon Vitali is said to have suggested casting the girls as twins deviating from stephen king's novel and adding a sinister twist to the film although in the film itself it says that they're different ages and then of course we have danny's apollo uh, jumper again if you've seen room 237 the moment in which they're talking about kubrick faking the moon landings and you think this is all hooey and then you suddenly realize that danny's wearing the apollo 11 jumper which is a great reveal it's tiny. It's absolutely tiny. Come and play with
0: us. Come and play with us, Danny. Forever. And ever. And ever.
1: And now into Doctor Strangelove room, which has The astonishing designs for the film by Ken Adam. The war room, famously.
0: Gentlemen, you can't fight in here, this is the war room. What is going on here, I demand an explanation.
1: And then storyboard and artwork for the end of the film as we now know it, although famously over here, there are the photographs from the pie fight, which would have been at one point the conclusion to the film. Uh, photos by Ouija. There is Peter Sellers covered from head to foot in, in pie. <laughs> it is just strange to imagine that, that it, that's how it all could have worked out. Again, it's always interesting seeing alternative versions of things, like seeing the alternative versions of the hats that just wouldn't have worked but realising that nothing was arrived at, sort of ex nihilo, that everything was arrived at, every decision was arrived at, by testing out hundreds of other decisions before getting to the right one. There's a picture there of Ouija with uh, Peter Sellers and George C. Scott. Another quote from Kubrick, most of the humour in Doctor Strangelove arises from the depiction of everyday human behaviour in a nightmarish situation. There's a telegram here which is lovely. This is a telegram, a Western Union telegram. Stanley Kubrick, 145 East 44th. Dear Stanley, congratulations. It is a privilege and an honor to be associated with you. Thank you for making Columbia's year so successful. Sincerely, Bob Ferguson. And it is an old Western Union telegram. We did a Secrets of Cinema recently about disaster movies, and one section of it was about the end of the war, the obliteration of all life on the planet. And Strange Love obviously featured in that, because it's still so chilling funny, but completely chilling.
0: Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb.
1: And then we move into a room about Barry Lyndon, so we have here the Mitchell BNC camera with Zeiss f oh seven oh point seven high speed lens, the Mitchell BNC blimped noiseless camera with standard equipment for most studio work. This particular camera was modified to accommodate the high-speed lens that was used for the candlelight scenes in Barry Lyndon. Extreme high-speed lens was made for NASA to be used for space photography with Hasselblad 6x6 medium format cameras. So anyone who's seen Barry Lyndon knows that the whole thing that's remarkable about it is the fact that the entire scene shot by candlelight and the, the fact that Stanley got in touch with NASA to help, help him solve the problems. And there is the camera quote on the wall, I love the story and the characters and it seemed possible to make the transition from novel to film without destroying it in the process we did um, I did a a video blog about Barry Lyndon when it was re-released recently Um, well not recently, a couple of years ago, to me that's recent and um, I remember saying afterwards I'd forgotten how funny Barry Lyndon is, I mean everyone talks about the beauty of the imagery but I'd just forgotten how many jokes there are in it and these, uh, this exhibition, this, they've had these um, digital candles designed to hang over the costumes, which is great. Actually works really well. Just lights it really beautifully. And I remember uh, another personal touch. I remember I was at a party once and I met a young woman. And she, she said, oh, my father's an actor. And I said, who is he? She said, well, I'll give you a clue. He was in two Stanley Kubrick movies. I said, Leonard Rossiter. She went, yep. The number of people who are in two Stanley Kubrick movies is fairly short, and then to two thousand and one, *Space Odyssey*. And this, now, there is some really remarkable stuff in here. The first thing that you notice is that there is a case with the, um, I shouldn't call it gorilla suit, with the early man suit, with the, the you know, the watcher suit. There is a famous story, which may well be apocryphal, that. The same year that 2001 was up for the Academy Awards, um, Planet of the Apes won a special award for makeup, And Kubrick was rumoured to have said that the reason that he didn't, that 2001 didn't win was because the Academy didn't realise that what they were looking at in his film was people in suits, obviously because they're not talking and they don't sound like Roddy McDowell. But the suits have aged incredibly well. They are apparently original. And quite often, if you see any kind of, Creature effects stuff from movies—it just falls apart because it's not built to last. But this has obviously been really well preserved. There is an entire full-size um, Moonwatcher suit and face with the movable parts of the face. God, it's really—it's it, amazing because I think you know when I was when I saw 2001 when it first came out. No, I didn't see it when it first came out. I must have seen it on a revival because it came out in I 68. I saw it the week after I saw Silent Running. And I don't think I could ever have conceived of being this close to that costume. The sound you can hear in the background is because famously that's Ligeti um, from, from the Stargate sequence. Ligeti who famously hadn't signed off on permission for Kubrick to use his music. <laughs> There are some original um, designs here, models here, for the, for the Dawn of Man sequence. Stuff about the use of front projection and the way in which you can use front projection to make the, that whole landscape appear in camera. Again, I mean, one of the most remarkable things about all this is that you think how much of what was done was done in camera. Made radio contact with him yet.
0: The radio is still dead. Do you have a positive track on him? Yes, I have a good track. Do you know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave, I don't have enough
1: information. Open the bar door, have? Huh? It's another interesting thing about the, the, the Moonwatcher costume. There is a famous photograph, which is in the, the, the is it Joel Siegel Making of 2001 book, which is a picture of, um, of, uh, of the actor who is, does it say there? Yeah, it does. It says, original costume as worn by Dan Richter. So there was a picture of him wearing that costume. Because once they got him into it, they couldn 't get him out of it with a tube in his mouth because when, when the when left to itself, the mouth closed and he would start to suffocate with a tube in the mouth so that he could breathe, reading the times so which is just it 's a great behind the scenes picture and then we move into the sort of the more space age section of the two thousand and one exhibition, so above us is a model of the the spaceship itself and the Jupiter mission. And then there's a model of the shuttle, the Pan Am shuttle, that flies out to, uh, to the space station in the second section of the film. There's a kind of recreation of the Hilton space station with the Howard Johnson's and the furniture, which still to this day looks fantastically futuristic and retro at the same time. Um, a model of the, uh, of the carrier that takes them from uh, the moon base out to where the dig is. When Douglas Trumbull first got on board with the film, he was brought on to do some display screens for the, for the shuttle, for the, the shuttle landing. That was how he first started working on it because he ended up doing the, the Stargate sequence, which is sort of so famous to everybody. As we came in, there was the Oscar that Stanley Kubrick won for the visual effects for 2001, which famously Stanley Kubrick won on his own. <laughs> Despite the fact that other people were involved in the visual effects of 2001, he was, he was fully in control of it and of the credit. And there are some brilliant uh, design drawings of the various lunar craft. The iconic space helmet that I always thought made them look like frogs, with the sort of this, this, this strange, uh, the two sort of strange uh, circles on top, which made them look like frogs. There's the famous sequence when um, when the astronaut is cut off from his oxygen supply and he's wriggling in space, and he looks like literally looks like a frog boiling in water. Again, anybody who saw 2001 when they were a kid will be immediately struck by seeing this stuff in the flash. Kierna Discovery Helmet, as worn by Kier Delay. I say Kier Delay. I use that pronunciation because Noel Coward was once said to have said, "Kier Delay, gone tomorrow." This is a reproduction of the Hal uh, of, the, of the face of Hal. HAL was originally designed as a computer in which you could fit s- seven people, but actually it turns up in the film as this kind of this single box, which of course mirrors the shape of the monolith, which also mirrors the shape of a widescreen, um, widescreen projection turned on its side. This is a letter from Stanley Kubrick to Roger Karras from Polaris Productions. Dear Roger, we are badly in need of a mad computer expert who can be around and advise on dialogue and jargon to using computer scenes. It should be someone who has his eye on the future of computers and not just a stick-in-the-mud type. Can IBM assign someone from England to serve as this part-time liaison? Please advise as soon as possible. Best regards. Stanley from Boreham Wood.
0: I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. Al, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Al?
1: Al? And then amidst all the stuff over here, this is a children's menu from Howard Johnson's, because Howard Johnson's was one of the sort of product-placed... Uh, businesses that's in the film so here we have a children's menu from howard johnson's that they produced um to go along with the release of the film 2001 space odyssey Cinerama, super panavision and metro color debbie and robin go to a movie premiere with their parents <laughs> there's a story that when kubrick first showed 2001 to the bbfc British Board of Film Censors, as they were back then, they wanted to rate it A. And he said, no, it's a universal film. It's universally fine for everybody. And they said, well, there are things in it that we think would disturb a child. And so he arranged for a group of young people to watch a version of the movie and then asked them whether they were disturbed. And they all said they weren't. And the BBFC agreed to change the rating to a U. One of the very few cases in which a major filmmaker has demanded a U rating, which nowadays is kind of considered to be the kiss kiss of death, but he said it was because he wanted the film to be completely universal for everybody. And then playing, here is the, the sequence when they uh, go down to photograph the monolith. Again, with the sounds of uh, Ligeti in the background. And that kind of brings us to the end. It's, it's great. However, there is one more treat as we go out into the foyer. So we'll leave through and there are sort of credits, which is great. You do feel like you've walked through Kubrick's career. As we leave into the foyer, there is slap bang in the middle of the foyer. There is the Durango 95, which purred away real horror show in Clockwork Orange. Apparently there was only ever three of them in existence. When Malcolm McDowell was here just a few weeks ago, they got him to get into it. The only way you can get into that car is by going in through the roof. And I am really impressed that Malcolm McDowell is still fit, nimble, not to say slim enough to be able to get himself into that car. But there it is, the Durango 95 purred away, real horror show. And actually, I think that's a pretty good uh, description of the exhibition itself. It is real horror show. Well, there we go. I hope you enjoyed this Kermit on film. Uh, wander through the Stanley Kubrick exhibition, which is here at the Design Museum on Kensington High Street until the fifteenth September. Do come along. Um, book your tickets in advance because it promises to be very, very popular indeed. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please remember to subscribe. Also, if you haven't already listened to it, go back and check out the Malcolm McDowell edition from a couple of weeks ago, in which Malcolm McDowell talked about Clockwork Orange and briefly about coming to the exhibition itself. Thanks for listening. Keep watching, this guys.